0: I do worry that the use of censorship is only available to people in power. And you always have to worry about what censorship will do to the people out of power, which includes almost invariably in a two-party system, you in the future.
1: And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Today, I want to use this little spiel I always do at the beginning of a podcast to argue for a very simple principle. When you think about politics, you need to be guided by your own values, by your own principles, not by what you might say or what you might care about fits into the current narrative. I want to give two examples of this one perhaps a little bit more trivial and one rather more important. The first is that it is often the case that terms which people use are appropriated by bad actors. But criticisms you might make are also echoed by people with whom you disagree. And in the phrase of what Emily Yoffe has quoted in conversation with me, 180ism, The tendency then is to take the opposite position. So if Donald Trump goes on about how bad Antifa is, the temptation is to start saying that perhaps actually Antifa is all right. And when people are using phrases like cancel culture in obvious bad faith, when Fox News crowds about it in inappropriate contexts all of the time, or Andrew Cuomo says that for him to resign over serious allegations of sexual assault would be to give in to cancel culture. The temptation is to think that anybody who worries about the illiberal atmosphere in our intellectual life at the moment, who worries about some of the witch hunts that are going on, is somehow on the side of Fox News or of people like Andrew Cuomo. That is a mistake. You can oppose both Antifa and some of the people who make ridiculous claims about it. You can think that Andrew Cuomo should if the allegations against him turn out to be well-founded, resign, and yet believe that we should worry about the ways in which people are often being cancelled for ridiculous reasons or without strong evidence. Now that brings me to the most important point. In politics, it is really easy to care about victims when they fit into your narrative and not to care about them too much to minimize the suffering, or simply to shut up about it when it doesn't easily fit into your narrative. Over the last months, people have been strangely and shockingly quiet about the terrible violence against Asian Americans, in part because there seemed to be some evidence that a lot of the perpetrators may have been Black. Well, now, this past week, after the terrible mass shooting of Asian American women in Atlanta, some of the people who talked about anti-Asian violence in the last months have gotten rather quiet. And some of those who didn't say anything about it, or who tried to shoehorn it into a simplistic narrative of white supremacy when uh, that didn't seem to fit, are suddenly talking about it. Well, we should care about anti-Asian violence, which is a real danger in this country and a reality in this country every day. Whichever side of a political spectrum it seems to serve in quotation marks, whatever easy narrative it does or does not seem to fit in, don't let these kinds of partisan considerations determine what you stand for and who you stand up for. Well, today, it's my pleasure to welcome Clay Shirky onto the podcast. Clay is the Vice Provost of Educational Technologies at NYU, and he teaches at its Journalism Institute. I've known Clay's work for a long time because of a very optimistic book about the internet called Here Comes Everybody, published in 2008, that I used to teach in my class on Democracy in the Digital Age at Harvard a good number of years ago. And we tried to figure out whether the optimism of that book was justified, what it got wrong, But also whether the pessimism of this moment about social media and the internet is justified or whether that might get some things wrong too. Along the way, we talk about everything from censorship on social media platforms to the way in which technology is transforming dictatorships around the world. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Clay Shirky, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Anja. So I used to teach uh, expository writing at Harvard, the sort of first-year introductory academic writing course, and it was called Democracy in the Digital Age. And one of the key texts that I taught was your book, Here Comes Everybody. And it's funny because the basic tenor of your book, but also the basic tenor of the consensus among undergraduates at the time, was that tech is an incredibly positive force around the world that the way in which it connects us to each other is going to you know, make people more tolerant and more connected and make it much easier for incumbent political movements to challenge uh, autocratic countries and dictatorships in the Middle East and elsewhere. And I saw at the time my role in the course in part as trying to make the argument for pessimism a little bit because I thought it was a sort of slightly easy consensus around the optimism. I now feel like we've flipped 180 degrees and we're in a world where sort of it's obvious that tech and social media is making everything worse. And so I sort of, my slightly contrarian side in me now it's more sympathetic to trying to correct that story. You know, how do you feel about the optimism we had 10 years ago and whether there's something in that, what that got wrong and what perhaps the consensus today gets right or wrong?
0: First of all, I feel much the same as you do, which is a kind of correction that has become in some way an overcorrection. I will say that I have been thinking, you know, particularly in light of the Trump administration in the U.S. context, been thinking, what did I miss in 2005, 2006, when I was writing that book? And also, what parts of it are still true? Looking back, I think one of the most important things I think I missed was the assumption that these tools aggregate individual efforts into group force was correct, but that in the hands of racists, for example, aggregate group force is not something you want society to be dealing with. So in fact, if it is just an amplifier, it's amplifying the good parts as well as the bad parts. You know, I have long been a subscriber to Alec Balk's first law, which is everything you hate about the internet is really something you hate about people. But I think for many of us, certainly living in a liberal enclave like New York City, and not just New York City, but, you know. Brooklyn and Greenwich Village, I just didn't know how many Americans could be animated by racial grievance, racial and ethnic grievance. And I think certainly what the Trump campaign showed us is that that group was out there to be activated and that the techniques that were adopted, you know, especially on 4chan in the early days and later on the Donald and Reddit and so on, very much the techniques of a group kind of aggregating its goals and using a lot of symbolic communication to coordinate action that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. At the same time, when you look around, if you ask yourself the question, is the United States more or less liberal now than it was in 2015? I think the answer is pretty clearly it's more liberal. And when you look at the sort of two hallmark movements under Trump, Me Too and Black Lives Matter. The phrase Black Lives Matter came from a Facebook post. Me Too is literally a hashtag. There is much more struggle between essentially progressive and reactionary groups using these tools. But in the U.S. context, the progressive groups seem to me to be getting the upper hand, certainly culturally. So I would say it is a much bumpier road than I anticipated, the amplification of ethno-nationalism in the United States, which I believed had been relegated to the sidelines. I was completely wrong about that. It's been and remains really challenging. On the world stage, positive examples like Tunisia or South Korea are set against negative examples and a move by autocrats to consolidate against their own populations. So I would say, you know, essentially the magnification of group action has been a much more mixed bag than I believed it would be, you know, 15 years ago. But the country by country, there are also places where we are to your counter reaction. We're actually seeing net positive results, even at the cost
1: of enormous struggle. So perhaps that split this into the domestic piece you talked about and the international piece. Now that I'm hearing an optimist, my contrarian instinct kicks in and I want to make the case for pessimism again. I mean, one of the basic mechanisms that are going on is simply that as people are able to connect with each other, we assumed that this would lead to greater mutual tolerance, a seeking out of difference, a sense where we ultimately all have something in common. And I think what we've seen on, frankly, all kinds of sides of politics is that this has not been the case, that it has allowed on groups like The Donald and so on and 4chan for people to organize around anger and grievances that we thought were not that politically potent. But once these people were able to connect to each other, they became very powerful. But I'm also struck, honestly, by the change in tone and an attitude among our friends and colleagues in, as you would put it, Greenwich Village in Brooklyn, that actually there is a real doubling down within identity silos, a real doubling down within political silos, an increased disrespectful and hatred of people who don't fit that easily. And so I wonder whether it's a little bit too easy to say this is something that's going on on the Donald and 4chan, but then on the liberal progressive sides, I think these are not identical. I think there's a difference between liberals and progressives actually. But on the liberal progressive side of politics, everything is honky dory I think we see the same mechanism, but people connect to those who are like them, become very intolerant of those who are part of the out-group. And that too is a reason for pessimism in my mind. Even for some of the movements that may have come out of that may be very positive and some of the overall attitudinal shift It has been positive over the last 10 years. I'm not sure that's going to last because I think a lot of that is just a public opinion moving against the president. So it moved in a very liberal direction in the last four years. It may move in a more conservative direction in the next four or eight years. But the mechanism behind that worries me.
0: So uh, first of all, I don't want to suggest that everything is hunky-dory because there have been progressive social movements that have managed to sustain themselves. But I don't think that the momentum behind Black Lives Matter and Me Too was just, it took place under a president, but neither of them were just reactions to the president. And when you look at, so again, I'm in New York, a liberal city and a democratic state. Our governor is under enormous pressure right now for the kind of behavior that would five years ago not even have been reported on, much less be seen as a threat to his presidency. And that's happening after Trump has been removed and in a state where he's a Democratic governor in a majority Democratic state. So I don't think that we're just seeing cyclic and counter-cyclic movement. I think that both Black Lives Matter and Me Too have made changes that are likely to continue. And I take your point that they may be more accelerated when you have someone you can be as oppositional to as you can be with Trump but I may be more optimistic than you that this isn't just a sine wave that goes inverse to the leader of the country. To the question of intolerance on the left and right, I heard you also trying to balance the kind of you don't want to both sides do it equivalence, because that's obviously not true. But it's also obviously true that a sense of purity on the left, again, and I take your point about liberals and progressives being different categories, but the idea that the people you disagree with are not people to be persuaded or collaborated with on shared issues, but people to be anathematized and removed from the community. That is always a danger. Any place that makes it easier to form an in group necessarily makes it easier to identify an out group. And that is, I think, something that wasn't as clear. Again, thinking back to mistakes I made in the middle of the first decade. The relative power of groups assembling on the internet was so much about power inside the group, like the pro-anorexia kids that I wrote about in the book. It's obviously a negative example, but it wasn't a negative example that then became part of the larger political frame of society. But the power of in-groups to now identify and punish out-groups is larger than it was. And that's a danger on all sides. That is, as you say, that is much a danger on the liberal side as on the conservative side. It looks to me right now like the conservative purity test or the Republican purity test, I should say. The Republican purity test for basically fealty to Donald Trump and that rough coalition of ideas is much stronger than on the liberal side, that there's always going to be sort of democratic socialists of America versus anarchist kind of stuff. And that was famously true of visaparous Marxist movements since Marx. But even given that, there do seem to me to be movements that are better at making common cause with one another across shared interests without devolving into pure purity tests. And Occupy, I think, was the sort of harbinger here where generally having identified the locus of trouble in American society as the financialization of everything, allowed a whole constellation of groups to come together. And some of them were problematic. The LaRouche people, the anti-Semitism and so forth that was on view in Zuccotti Park was somewhat problematic, but it never swamped the larger message. And, you know, I think the person who's done the best work here is Zainab Tufesci, who identified The weakness in rapid action that didn't lead to deeper community norms forming, that instead you just liked sort of high volume, high symbolic action in short terms, and you weren't actually putting pressure on the system. I am, and again, maybe more optimistically than you, I am optimistic that the two signal movements of the Trump era, Black Lives Matter and Me Too, are not making that mistake, that they've essentially whether they read Zainab or not, they've essentially internalized what she was saying, and that those movements seem to be to be real movements, and they seem to me to have managed to figure out how to bring pressure on key institutions over long periods of time, not just to have a kind of uprising like Zuccotti and then disperse.
1: That's one of the interesting questions. I mean, some of the instinct to be intolerant towards the outgroup, even if your definition of in-group is tolerance, is very old. I always think of a lovely line from Tom Lehrer, the American political satirist from the 50s and 60s, who said, you know, it's very important to love your fellow human beings. And there are some people in the world who do not love your fellow human beings, and I hate people like that. So it's something that's obviously an old instinct. But I do wonder whether there's something about social media that makes us much less good at dealing with political heterogeneity. Which is to say that normally, you know, it's not as though the Veterans Club in Alabama and the gathering of NYU academics in Greenwich Village in 1965 would have had similar political views to each other, right? They would have been very far apart even then. But nevertheless, in most of life, you will encounter people who have quite different views from you whether it's your family, whether it's your friendship group, whether it is your employer, whether it is religious organizations, none of them are going to be an exact replica of the diversity of viewpoints in the United States, but all of them will have some real internal heterogeneity. Now, there's some real world phenomena that have undermined that, including the greater and greater geographical sorting, including the religious sorting that has happened and so on. But I think social media really plays an incredibly strong role on this, that when the majority of conversations we have is online, and when you have a choice as to who you follow, you know you are going to get into these tiny bubbles. Now, as you're saying, some of them are not political, right? Some of them are people who have a danger of becoming anorexic or who are anorexic, suddenly being able to just talk to other people who are actually glorifying this and who are part of the same community, and that may radicalize people in that direction. But it's also obviously true in politics. And that seems to me to be an insight that we were really lacking 10 or 15 years ago. There were some people talking about this, but I really don't think we were taking that seriously enough. And that does make me quite nervous about the ability of our political system to deal with and represent not just left and right, but 50 people who all have fanatical beliefs around some issue, only listen to people who agree with them on that issue, and therefore are very dissatisfied with what two political parties might ever say to them right so yes to all of that and there was so much there I was as you were talking I was thinking of
0: the research that found and it was conducted prior to the widespread of social media that people wrongly believed that their friends held the same political views as they do That we all tend to ascribe people we get along with as also agreeing with us. And people were often surprised when they learned the sort of full extent of their friends' political views, how much heterogeneity there were in groups. And one of the things the Internet has done is just made our overall beliefs so much more visible to one another. That people went into a kind of a shock at the heterogeneity and the filter bubble, you know, a great observation about this tendency towards self sorting, then really took hold. As you say, the tendency to sort of self sort has always been there. One interesting break on that in the United States, one interesting countervailing force is the fact that we're a two party system. And we are again seeing calls we need a third party, we need a multi party democracy. I am not as convinced that that is the case because. In 2016, and I believe also in 2000, third party candidacies were surprisingly popular and in some cases swung a state from one column to the other. In 2020, everyone understood that the stakes were very high and it was either four more years of Donald Trump or four years of Joe Biden. And that any third vote, any vote for a third candidate, was essentially counterweighting only one of those two options, third parties come in third for the obvious reason. And the fact that at a time when political disaffectation can't have been lower than it was in 2016, there was no significant third party campaigning and certainly no significant third party vote, suggests to me that the U.S. system has deeper reservoirs of self-correcting behavior than it's sometimes been given credit for which is to say the corrective to demanding a candidate that meets all of your views is simply not being able to be in power. And that at a certain point, Americans love an idealized view of the political landscape, but in the end, the question of who's in power is the question elections are there to solve, not which ideology will run the government. And there do seem to me to be some self-correcting models there. That is going on on the right as well. You know, the never Trumpers after four years of being in the wilderness are suddenly coordinating with one another and have a platform that isn't wide, but it's wide enough to force a reckoning in the Republican Party. So I don't want to say that the design of the U.S. Constitution is so brilliant that it's inherently self-correcting in all cases. But I do want to say that the deepening filter bubble model would I think have predicted more third party voting in 2020 than happened, which suggests to me that people are responding and starting to understand that politics, particularly as it's practiced in the U.S., presents people with this really stark choice between purity and power. You can be as pure as you like, as long as you don't mind having zero political power. And in 2016, that was an appealing opportunity. People didn't like Clinton and they didn't like Trump. And so they're going to vote for Jill Stein or whatever, Gary Johnson. None of that in 2020. And I think that those cycles take longer than many of us would like. They are less
1: effective than many of us would like. But they're not completely missing. Sort of one of the underplayed explanations for the 2016 election is simply and straightforwardly that both political parties run candidates that at the time were very unpopular, historically unpopular, for complicated reasons that allowed Donald Trump ultimately to edge out a victory in the Electoral College, but not in the popular vote. You know, you do pose the interesting question of, you know, why was that not the case in 2020? Um, I think partially the stakes of the election were clearer after four years of Donald Trump. But I think it's two things, right? One is that Joe Biden just is a more popular candidate than Hillary Clinton. You can debate why that might be, but all of the evidence suggests that it, in fact, is the case. And then, two, of course, Donald Trump had managed to consolidate his support among traditional Republican voters over those four years. So a lot of the people who did vote for Gary Johnson or for Evan McMullin in 2016 sort of, quote-unquote, came home to the Republican Party, even though Donald Trump was still in the ticket. And that sort of, I think, helps to explain this. By the way, that, I think, undercuts some of the explanations for Donald Trump's victory. I mean, people who are saying that this is all sort of for the worst possible reasons that he won in 2016, don't reckon enough with the fact that he wasn't actually that popular a candidate. And that makes me a little bit more hopeful than most people are for the ability of the Republican Party in 2024 to choose somebody who I'm very unlikely to vote for, but who hopefully represents a much more sensible traditional conservatism than Donald Trump does.
0: Every bit of the conversation about who will run in 2024 is junk. It amazes me, in a way, just having lived through the trauma of this particular election, everybody's gearing up to talk about the next one. We don't even know which politicians will still be in the running. And you hate to say it, but at the age that both Biden and Trump are, we don't know if they'll be in good enough health to run in 2024. So all of that speculation is really talking about local politics, you know, but projecting it four years in the future. But Yasha, I want to go back to something you said earlier about when people can select who they connect to. You framed this in terms of Here Comes Everybody, which came out in 2008. When I think back to what did I miss, I looked at the book at its 10th anniversary, so two years ago, and I realized I wrote more about Meetup than Facebook in 2008. I wrote more about a group that used the internet to drive connectivity in the real world and had interest-oriented small groups spread across the country versus the world's largest version of the social graph. And I believed at the time what you said, which is that this is driven by people choosing to connect with one another. When I think about improving the health of the social media ecosystem, if I were in the position to do that, I think all of the conversations about ex post facto control of content and deciding which things do and don't go online, there's great frustration with both Facebook and Twitter for understandable reasons, but at the same time, I think we should be reflexively worried about having private companies police speech. To me, the huge risk here is the people who don't choose to be connected to one another but are still connected, that for all of human history prior to 1996, if you knew two people, your work colleague and your best friend or your sister and your dealer, whatever, if you knew two people who didn't know each other, the question of who connects those people always had the answer, you do. You decide if you're going to connect them or not. Sometimes it could be a mutual introduction. Sometimes you just have them both to your birthday party and they meet each other. But starting with Six Degrees, the famous progenitor of the social graph pattern, and moving through LiveJournal and Friendster and MySpace to famously Facebook and Twitter, what the companies needed was for everyone you knew to know each other. They needed your sister and your dealer or your friend and your colleague to meet. And if you weren't going to do it, they were going to do it for you. And over and over again, these companies, in the interest of the spread of advertising, have created social graphs that are much, much more densely interconnected than human beings would draw for themselves. And every amplification is a distortion. And I'll tell you, I lived in Shanghai for several years and watched the rise of WeChat while I was there, which is the largest social media app in China. It is roughly Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp in one package, although that, in a way, undersells its importance. It's an astonishing piece of software. But one of the things that WeChat does not do is it does not introduce my friends to each other unless I initiate that. If I post something on a WeChat Moments, which is roughly similar to Instagram, and you comment and Rebecca comments, but you two don't know each other, not only will it not introduce you, it will not even show you her comment. It will not show her your comment.
1: So that's a fascinating difference. I wonder what the implication is. Now, going back to sort of the false assumptions that we naively made about the impact of people being able to communicate costlessly and it actually leading them to double down within ideological interest silos rather than connecting across them, I guess here, the hope would be that, you know what, perhaps you might think that, you know, your friend A and your friend B don't get along, but now that they're connected, they can get to see each other and get to know each other and cross their differences. And so therefore, we become more tolerant. And perhaps that would happen at a birthday party where they're in the same room and they're sharing a drink. But it seems like what's actually happening in the real world on Facebook walls and so on is that suddenly, you know, friend A says, why on earth do you tolerate having friend B? when, friend, B's values are clearly so bad. And so actually this connection, the sort of scaling up of a social graph, as you put it, puts more pressure towards conformity rather than heterogeneity. Right. And it is often very performative
0: conformity. You go on to patriots.win, which is the old thedonald.win, which is the old the donald from Reddit. It's now renamed itself several times. There is great disagreement about how to engage in us politics after trump's loss there's great disagreement about how seriously or not seriously to take q but then you read the rules and they are very specifically designed to prevent opinion splitting it is much more important to the people who run patriots.win that there be an illusion of total agreement than that they actually host a complicated political conversation among themselves and i think that the artificial density And the expectation that we'll all be connected to each other and that we can see things that other people say that the friends of our friends say, hugely amplified across these social networks, is a big part of the problem. If I could do any two things to Facebook to make it a more humane and less politically horrifying environment, I would reduce content sharing and link recommendation among people who don't know each other which would be hugely damaging to their advertising business. I'm not saying that they can do this because they're committed to essentially pushing a literally superhuman level of content spread onto poor, hapless human beings. And the other would be to slow things down. If you added one-tenth of one second in the propagation speed every time a link or an image was shared, no one would notice under a threshold of a thousand, right? If you and a thousand of your friends are going to look at something, everybody gets it at basically the same time. But if it gets to a million, it slows down. And viral content, it isn't just a question of do a few people see it or do a lot of people see it. Every time media speeds up, it becomes more emotional because our emotions react faster than our intellect. And not exactly by design, but that's the way that humans have adapted. The flip side of that is if you slow down the spread of content literally without regard to the message, and I mean just by a few minutes, in some cases, a few hours, it
1: will quite literally give people more time to think. To push back, for example, you know, as happened after the bombing of the Boston Marathon, misidentification of the perpetrator, right? If it takes a few more hours to reach a million people, then it gives more time to people pushing back and saying, actually, we can prove that this wasn't this person or that we don't know That's interesting. I'm now second-guessing my favorite intervention, which is that I was struck when I started using Reddit a little bit, which I only did about a year or so ago. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. But actually, I find the culture there by and large much more pleasant and sane than on Twitter, especially in the mainstream forums. I'm a great fan of Am I the Asshole, where people come and sort of seek advice about their life. And the most upvoted answer is nearly always humane, reasonable, Nice. If you scroll down far enough, you still get the sort of trolls and so on somewhere. But you have to actively go look for them. It's not what flies in your face. And the reason for that is very simple, which is that on Twitter, what surfaced is the content that is most controversial, where there's the most likes and the most hostile responses and the most positive retweets and the most negative retweets. That's what you're going to see, right? It's like a cocktail party in which 100 people are chattering away, and at any one time, the person saying the most controversial thing has the megaphone and sort of outpaces everybody else. On Reddit, it's the opposite. So what determines whether you're seen is the delta, the difference between positive votes and negative votes. So if 2,000 people vote yes and 2,000 people vote no, the comment is not highlighted. If it's 1,000 people vote yes and 10 people vote no, that's going to be the top comment. And so I think that actually creates very nice communities by and large. Now, of course, and this is where I'm second guessing myself, it also then allows the rise of communities of people who may have very extreme views but are homogeneous amongst themselves. And then it also becomes very difficult to challenge the prevailing consensus in those groups. And that's a sort of secondary effect of that, right? So I guess the problem with that change would be that it would improve the mainstream conversation, but it also favors at the same time the rise of these much more extreme, smaller communities. And that is, in fact, what Reddit looks like. Most of Reddit is very, very pleasant. And then you go to some of the dark corners of it, and they're truly dark.
0: Right. Anytime you're discussing censoring other people's views, there has to be, in my view, a degree of concern that you're creating a weapon that will be used against. you. And I had this quite disorienting feeling. So we moved to Shanghai in 2014. When I left, the liberal consensus was Foursquare against censorship of any kind. Trump was elected while I lived in Shanghai. I would come back in the summer, so I was completely divorced from the U.S., but I live 48 weeks a year in Shanghai. When I came back in 2017, the consensus on censorship had shifted. And it shifted, I think, in huge reaction to the things like the Donald on Reddit, but I do worry that the use of censorship is only available to people in power. And you always have to worry about what censorship will do to the people out of power, which includes almost invariably in a two-party system, you in the future. So I am more interested in rough self-governing mechanisms like the Reddit mechanisms that you were outlining. They basically looked at Slashdot, the site that did for the comments, what Reddit then did for the stories, as it were, and things like, am I the asshole or explain it like I'm five? Those are astonishingly rich communities that do, in general, surface the humane answer and people speak to each other graciously and so on. It's hard to say we only want to coordinate groups we like. But it's not, I think, hard to say we want to minimize the effect of extremist groups. And my preference for that model is to make a structure that does that rather than saying there's a Supreme Court that essentially judges whether or not your speech is acceptable.
1: So let's go into the censorship question. I tried to push Cara Swisher on this when I had her on the podcast and I found, but I wasn't entirely convinced by the answer. So I'm interested to hear what you think the option space there is. So first of all, I agree with you. I think it's remarkable how quickly we have come from an acceptance that any form of censorship is bad and that allowing internet companies any form of prioritization of content is an incredible danger, which I largely agreed with, but had some disagreements with to just yay censorship and it's always going to be the right people doing it and why is there a reason to be concerned. I mean, it's amazing to me how the sort of media class is running in lockstep on this. I tweeted recently that it's weird we went from a net neutrality debate where the supposed threat to the free internet was that, you know, perhaps Time Warner could decide not to prioritize certain content because of its political leanings, which was always off the table, but that they might say, okay, look, perhaps we can prioritize video content to non-video content. And I had people earnestly tell me that this would be the end of the internet, and we would absolutely oppose this. Now I understand that in many places cable providers are monopolists and it's not exactly the same, they don't exactly play the same role as Facebook or Twitter. Sure, I get all of that. But now those same people are saying, censor anything I dislike, you know, stop social media platforms that we dislike from being able to be accessed on app stores at all, kick off people we don't like from Twitter and Facebook. And there's no downsides to this. And if you worry about the downsides, then you sort of a weird reaction. It's very odd to me how that happened in five years. And one of the reasons that I worry about this is precisely that I don't see the good solution. I mean, the solution that we currently seem to have is simply a bunch of people in Silicon Valley making ad hoc decisions about what's acceptable and what's not based in part by what goes viral and people shouting at them on their own social media platforms, which is not a good thing. The second alternative would be to have an elected government body making those kinds of determinations. That is not a life option in the United States because of the First Amendment, and I think would have real difficulties and normative problems in other countries too. And the third is that social media platforms sort of basically self govern in some weird regulatory mechanism, like the Motion Picture Association that determines the ratings, right? So some industry sort of self-governing, that seems to be what people are moving towards. I'm also very worried about who's going to be making those decisions, uh, what it's going to look like, and whether any incremental positive impact you get from that in removing some toxic content. And of course, there's a lot of terrible content that it would be wonderful if nobody ever saw. But any incremental progress you make on that, you probably pay for very richly in the feeling of anger and persecution that it's going to spread in a lot of people. And there's always going to be mistakes People will always know the examples on their own side when reasonable people are being unfairly banned. They will never perceive people on the other side who have been unreasonably banned to the same extent. And so you can have a situation where we're already approaching where everybody feels that Twitter and Facebook is biased against their political group. That seems to me like the worst possible world we can end up in. So tell me whether you think there is a case for any form of censorship. And if not, what's your case against it? Of course, there's a case for certain forms of censorship. What I worry about is
0: what you were talking about earlier, which is the belief that the right people will always be doing. it. Society will always need some way to say, this is beyond the pale. X is beyond the pale. In the United States, the example always brought up the canonical case is child pornography, right? That we have a robust tradition of free speech, very high threshold for a priori banning of anything, and that child pornography fails all of those tests, and we will deal with it differently. The worry is that if the edge cases are allowed to infinitely expand to become the main case, then you have censorship as your move of first resort rather than last resort. So to me, the censorship regime that has gotten the least attention and is the most successful is ARBCOM, Wikipedia's Supreme Court. And Wikipedia remains a space where liberals and conservatives have to duke it out. And people across, you know, many spectrums, and many disagreements, but that's the politically salient one right now to write an article that can describe the places where they disagree without trying to be the platform for settling the disagreement. It is daily astonishing that Wikipedia works. It's been astonishing since this time 20 years ago and remains astonishing. But the mechanism that Wikipedia developed for themselves says, essentially, we will not sensor, we will let people edit, and we will let the edit arguments play out, and we have these talk pages. And when things get past a certain point, then and only then will we intervene. We will intervene first to protect the page from an edit war to let tempers cool off. And only in very, very rare, highly discussed cases will we say, we are taking this article down, we are banning this user. And who's the we in question? The we in question, interestingly, are Wikipedians, which is to say, people who have signed up to care more than average about Wikipedia as a system than about the content of any given article. It may be that there are no other systems where that self-nominating model can operate at a scale that creates isometric pressures. But there have been many cases. There's you know, famously conservopedia where people couldn't edit the article on evolution or abortion the way they wanted it to. So they went off to form conservopedia. But the problem with conservopedia is it doesn't reach the people who are undecided. It's the reason that Trump without Twitter doesn't matter if he can get on Gab or Parlay because if Twitter is the place where you can own the libs, there are no libs to own on those other platforms. But for all of Wikipedia's strangeness, even today, it is a working model for liberal conservative dialogue, often at a fever pitch, but ultimately a consensus-driven process that includes the possibility of censorship, but remands it to this very procedurally narrow set of cases. And Facebook has gotten a lot of shit for their, you know, essentially their sort of equivalent model that they're building. And I think that there is obviously some skepticism because Facebook's tendency to pick the rosiest interpretation of its own actions is always a risk here. But ultimately, every political system we know of reserves a special place for smart people solving hard problems. I think it was Richard Posner who said If a case gets to the Supreme Court, it should have no right answer in law. It shouldn't be just a matter of here are the rules and here are the facts and here's how they interact. The Supreme Court exists essentially as an escape valve for the inability of law to universally specify. ARBCOM, the Arbitration Committee on Wikipedia, exists for the same reason.
1: So we've talked about the procedure, which I think is interesting. What about the content, which is to say that one thing you need to do is to have the mechanism by which you resolve those kinds of disputes. The other thing is that the people making those decisions then have to have a standard. The standard we've given to the Supreme Court of the United States is the Constitution of the United States, as well as a bunch of positive law and so on. What kind of standard should something like the Supreme Court of Facebook incorporate? I think there's an interesting suggestion there from David French from a few years ago who says that Basically, Facebook and Twitter and so on should say, we will hold ourselves to Supreme Court First Amendment jurisprudence. Of course, they don't have to. They're a private company. They could ban on whatever grounds. But they should just publicly declare that they will broadly be guided by First Amendment jurisprudence. And so in the same way in which we have found a way of banning child pornography, even though we have a First Amendment, Facebook could continue to ban child pornography. But there would be a very broad range of political speech that it would allow. Does that seem like the right way to go to you? It's an interesting model, you know, as an
0: American who grew up in not just a country governed by the First Amendment, but a culture that essentially internalized First Amendment norms. There's a kind of intuitive appeal, but I immediately start rolling up the asterisks in my mind. The famous difficulty for, say, the German banning of discussion of Nazi materials, which passes tests in the U.S. that it would fail in Germany, suggests that the hewing of free speech laws in different countries becomes still problematic. Twitter famously says we will not distribute tweets within the countries where the law applies. But the second order problem is in a way more complicated, which is to say that our First Amendment, thanks largely in part to Benjamin Franklin, you know, the founding printer, as it were, of the United States, our First Amendment has always been obsessed with variations in media right, so that the postal service, which is a delivery mechanism, operates under different rules than broadcast television or radio or cable television. That the courts, in fact, have, whenever any new medium comes along, done almost the opposite of saying, we have basic principles and we'll just see where they fall with this medium. They have invented restrictions on broadcast TV because it's uniquely pervasive. But when cable came along, even though cable became pervasive, They didn't apply those same standards. So, if you say we're picking First Amendment jurisprudence for the public square and enforcing that on Twitter, that is extraordinarily different than the First Amendment jurisprudence on what newspapers are allowed to do
1: or what radio stations are allowed to do or what TV channels are allowed to do. So, it may not be determinate enough. But in fact, it may be right to say it's probably First Amendment standards, but it doesn't actually answer as many questions as you might assume.
0: It's not as determinate enough. And in a way, it doesn't settle the hardest question the internet has posed, which is, are we reasoning from speech among citizens governed by rules on slander, or are we reasoning about acts of publishers, which are much more tightly regulated and governed by the laws on libel? And what we have now are groups of people who in aggregate act with the force of a publisher, but without you being able to identify anyone who's in charge?
1: I mean, I wonder whether we should treat them as publishers. Now, I think treating them as publishers would actually have to think about this argument more. It would do two things, right? One is that it would allow a lot of the content that's now banned. A lot of the content that's now banned on social media is basically whatever most upsets employees of Twitter and Facebook, or, you know, some set of people on these social media platforms. And that, I think, is the worst possible... St- it's not the worst possible standards. There could be worse standards, but it's a pretty bad standard. There are worse ones, but yeah. On the other hand, you can libel people freely. You can say things that clearly would be libelous if the New York Times wrote them with no consequence at all, not even your account being blocked. Now, I think, actually, if we move towards a world where... If I gratuitously accuse you of having done terrible things, and that is a lie, and I did not engage in any due diligence in spreading that lie, that may at the very least result in me getting banned from Twitter or Facebook. But there's a broader range of political views that are allowed, and even if they may be unpopular among the staff of those social media companies or whatever, you can still use those platforms to express those views. That seems to me like going in the right direction on both counts, just sort of intuitively. Look, that's entirely possible. My point about French's sort of just say you're
0: in line with the First Amendment model is it doesn't solve the issue you were just raising, which is given First Amendment jurisprudence habit of treating different media differently, unlike civil law traditions, like most of the European media jurisprudence, you still have to answer the question of how these things operate. Many countries have gone to a numerical threshold, right? If more than a thousand people see it, you're a publisher in retrospect. And there are appeals to that. On the other hand, publisher style rules were always enforced on a small number of companies who knew in advance that they were subjected to those rules. For a teenage kid to say something and then have it spread beyond their circle and then out into the wider world and suddenly be governed as if they were the New York
1: Times it seems like too much jeopardy to put to someone. Well, but I would distinguish between govern for the purposes of the things over which Facebook and Twitter have jurisprudence. When I'm saying we should adopt those kind of libel standards, that doesn't mean that they should suddenly be responsible for libel in the United States Supreme Court or in the actual court system and might have to pay millions of dollars. But what I am saying is that the standard decided to whether or not to block people or to suspend their accounts might be akin to First Amendment jurisprudence applying to publishers. Now, the New York Times libels you. The New York Times will have to pay you a lot of money. If you libel somebody on Twitter, I think that's a good reason for Twitter to suspend your account or engage in some kind of punishment of you. That does not mean that you should pay lots and lots of money. That would certainly go too far.
0: And where U.S. jurisprudence has often said, we need to create some kind of clarity about whether you know that you can be governed in advance by these rules, what you're proposing is a kind of fuck around and fight out rule. I don't know if we're allowed to say this on this podcast, but a kind of fuck around and fight out rule, which says if you go after someone and you harm them by telling lies about them past a certain threshold, we're going to remove you even if you didn't
1: intend to cross that threshold. Well, I don't know if we need a threshold. I think that, you know, I have no problem with if you make serious accusations against somebody on social media you know, you need to have some kind of evidence and so on. Of course, the problem is how do you adjudicate that, right? I mean, in practice, it would be incredibly hard. I mean, libel cases in courts are incredibly complicated. And the idea that any arbitration committee would be able to figure out which of those kinds of accusations, many of which would be personal rather than political nature, are fair or not. The other thing, by the way, is a lot of the damage that's done to the social fabric in America by social media is not political, I think. It is precisely somebody in some small town having beef with somebody else and putting terrible accusations about the modern social media. And I think actually finding ways to govern that that do create a real disincentive for just casually lying about people in social media in that way would do a lot to repair parts of the social fabric that are being harmed at the moment.
0: The legal scholar James Gremmelman wrote about this in 2008. He saw this coming. He wrote a piece, I believe it's called Ghost Riding the Whip, but it was about the ways in which the big brother frame for social media and he saw this early early on the big brother frame for social media was not the right frame that in fact the concern was not facebook spying on you it was privacy spills and violations committed by your friends and the, the people are much more likely to be exercised about those issues than they are about you know they're
1: spying on me so that they can show me ads it's the basic insight that the promise was that the internet would turn the world into a global village. You know, having lived in a small German village as a Jew growing up for part of my childhood, I was always very desperate to get into a city. And I think part of the problem with the internet is that it has, in fact, turned the world into a global village with some of the positive, but also many of the negative aspects of village life, including the immense amount of collective social pressure, right? There's a million other things we could cover, but just towards the end of the conversation, I want to make sure that we cover the global aspect, which I teased at the very beginning. Well, was two worries I have. So you said there's some positive examples like Tunisia and also many negative examples. The first worry I have is that the negative examples are more numerous than the positive ones. You know, in the latest Freedom House report, I mean, I was struck by how hard the latest report had to work to find positive examples, which ended up being, I believe, Mali and North Macedonia. But the negative examples are India and the United States and Brazil, right? So it's sort of a different level of population and so on in those countries. The second point, which is slightly different, is that I worry, and this is a conversation I had with Martin Gurri on this podcast, for those of you who want to listen back to the back episode, I worry that there's a way of thinking about the internet as equal opportunity, that it just connects the periphery over the center, sort of the little man over the powerful, and this is going to destroy all power structures equally. But I worry that there's a real distinction between the ability of democratic governments to react to that, which thankfully cannot censor, which cannot fire bullets at protesters, which cannot jail people who disagree with them, and the ability of autocrats to deal with the internet. Because they can shut down critical websites, they can block outside influences, They can throw people in jail and they can fire at crowds if a protest forms. And so it may be that actually digital technology creates huge instability in democratic governments, but not huge instability in autocratic governments. And you know, it's speculative, but that's something I've been thinking about a lot. So I'd love to hear what you think about that set of worries.
0: Yeah, so I don't think that this is a one-way arrow in the direction of autocratic governments. Slork's control of Myanmar was uncontested until the population became connected enough to demand some change. And the rise of voting and the complicated governance of Aung San Suu Kyi was part of that story. But the fact of the crackdown now and the fact of the really intense pushback suggests that it's not just a slide to authoritarianism. that, in fact, authoritarian governments, you know, up to and including China and Saudi Arabia, are having more trouble keeping their middle class from making demands than a kind of they-can-open-fire-on-their-own-people model would suggest. I don't believe, for example, that Xi Jinping thinks that they can open fire on their own people. I think that Tiananmen, for them, was the last time that technique worked, and they are looking constantly for ways to govern without that. My fear is more a kind of muddled middle, which is that the move here isn't so much democracies are safe because they can self-manage this, whereas autocracies will get worse. My fear is that everybody slides towards weak democracy. That when you see populist movements in Poland, Hungary, the United States, the United Kingdom, that what we're seeing in a way is a style of government that is ushered in on an affective register that nostalgia for the nation state as a really kind of secure and easily policeable border, not just for physical movement, but for the movement of ideas, creates a kind of nostalgia among older people that allows you to do things like negotiate Brexit and bring in Johnson or elect Trump. And almost invariably populists in democracies campaign on a restoration of the past rather than an optimistic future. And that suggests to me a sort of basic weakness in that view. On the other hand, I was surprised by Brexit. Because of Brexit, I was not surprised by Trump. But my fear is that autocrats find ways to bring some more representation in as an escape valve, but maintain control, and that Democrats find a way to dial down basically having to be responsive to their own people, as the UK has done. And that's the worry when I read the Freedom House report. I don't think broadslide into autocracy so much as I see this kind of some of the trappings of democracy, what Fried Zakaria called illiberal democracy, some of the trappings of democracy, but that the basic form of representation is eroded. You know, the internet is a messaging platform for emotional appeals has been hugely strengthened by the rise of video and the rise of the speed of virality. When it was a text-based medium that moved slowly, it was just not as good for that kind of political messaging as it is now. And that's not so much about what Facebook is doing or what Twitter is doing as it is about this business of an unduly dense social graph and a highly capable internet where sharing even very large collections of video can now be done in an instant that didn't used to be able to happen.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. I've been talking with a colleague about the ways in which US democracy in the 21st century is, on certain counts, thankfully not on racial issues, starting to look more like 19th century America in terms of a hugely polarized political scene with no media that is seen as neutral in any way, and jostling over the rules of the game in a more intense way than we've had for the big stretches of the 20th century. And Thinking through the way in which social media has helped to influence that, I think, is really important.
0: So much more working the ref now than there used to be.
1: Yeah. Clay Shockey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.
0: This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner, for their song, Chess Pieces.